Hi, y'all. We are back today for another podcast episode. And today I'm really excited because I have a fellow psychologist on the podcast with me. I want to welcome Dr. Donna Henderson. She is a clinical neuropsychologist. And what today's episode is really going to focus on is the majority of you that are listening to this podcast have that autism diagnosis for your child or your child is autistic. And we want to have some of these conversations about what often can go alongside that autism presentation, that autism identity. And so we're going to go into maybe a lot of terms you may or may not have heard of today. These likely are things that when you're going to your child's provider, continuing to check in with people, things that you might not hear about. And so we want to empower you to inform yourself on these. We hope to give you an overview today. And ultimately, that way you can go back to your clinical team and have conversations about these topics. But Dr. Henderson actually got into the field later on in life. And this is part of kind of her story of how she got into the autism field and now really focuses on working with autistic youth and adults. Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental coach specializing in neurodivergent affirming care. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. And I know firsthand the impact autism can have. I was 12 years old when my little brother was diagnosed and my family had to learn how to navigate the autism journey. It wasn't always easy. Two decades later, I now create resources and services I wish my family had, including this podcast. And I developed the whole family approach. On this podcast, of course, we will talk about autism, but we will also talk about your personal growth and well being as a parent, supporting your non autistic children, and sharing personal stories of other families so you know you're not alone. Quick disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. Anything shared on this podcast should not be considered clinical advice, and you should consult with your team of medical, mental health, and developmental providers if you need support. So Dr. Henderson, Donna, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Taylor. Yeah, let's do first names. We usually do. Yeah, no reason to be formal. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I guess I, I could even say this, the way in which we met is really cool, just so the listeners know, is through this context of a group of psychologists coming together to ask ourselves, how can we use AI in a way that helps to streamline and expedite things, but doing it in a very ethical and HIPAA compliant way. And it's tedious is the word that comes to mind for me. And so we just have monthly meetings to talk about this because we also know that AI is likely here to stay. And how do we be mindful in using it in ways that actually serve the people that we work with? So yeah. Right. So Donna, tell us a little bit about yourself and yeah, again, how you got into this field and what your career looks like currently. Okay. So first of all, I am a non-autistic ADHDer and I have three children. Two of them are autistic and a third one is a non-autistic ADHDer like her mom. And I had no interest in autism at all. When I was in graduate school, I got almost zero training. I think we probably could have done all the training we did in one hour, like literally so little. That was about 30 years ago. 
And that was fine with me. And then I, over the years, just never, ever thought about autism. I assumed autistic people went to autism clinics and went about my work. I worked in rehab for a long time with people who had TBI and strokes and that sort of thing. And then when I transitioned to private practice, I was working with kids and adults who have ADHD and learning disorders. And you would think at that point, I would think I need to learn about autism. But even then I avoided it. It intimidated me because of my lack of training. And here's the thing. I knew so many other testing psychologists who felt the same way, who outright said, I don't do autism. And so it normalized it for me. And I thought that was okay. And I don't, I didn't realize at the time what a problem it was. And about 15 years ago, I, I literally had an insight all in one moment working with a client who was this brilliant 17 year old who had been evaluated every few years her whole life and had accumulated a gazillion diagnoses. You know them all, generalized anxiety, ADHD, sensory processing, selective mutism, all of the above. And for no good reason at all, in a flash, while I was working with her, I thought, this is autism in a different way I've ever thought about it. And then I started to do research. And of course, she, she was autistic. And the more I researched, the more I found out there was this mountain of research about autistics who camouflage. And there was this divide between all the research and clinical work. Mm -hmm. And so... I still thought it was just me, but I gradually realized, oh my God, this is a problem in the mental health field, in the medical field at large. We don't really understand the scope of autism as clinicians. And so I started to gradually educate other clinicians and it culminated in publishing two books on the topic. Yeah. And what are the names of those books? The first book is called, Is This Autism a Guide for Clinicians and Everyone Else? Because we thought we were, my co-author Sarah Whalen and I thought we were writing the book for clinicians and we gradually realized, oh my goodness, parents are interested, teachers are interested, everyone's interested. It's written for everybody. And then the second one is really written just for clinicians on how to wonder about whether or not your client is autistic. What do you do? How do you move through that? How do you decide? How do you talk to the client about it? And that's called, is this autism a companion guide for diagnosing? Okay. That's awesome. And I think such amazing resources and everything that you're saying, I absolutely still see in the field to this day. And we know too, that a lot of autistic individuals are missed because of this divide of, I don't do autism. I do autism and the laundry list of diagnoses that can come. And it's, oh, we just need to conceptualize this in this different way as this neurotype understanding how how it can present so differently in individuals. It's, I think it's really started to move away from this stereotypical presentation of autism and into, okay, we're understanding it at a much broader view right now. So yeah, right. absolutely. And particularly for people who are vulnerable in other ways, like females and trans people and um, BIPOC, other groups who tend to be marginalized. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's astonishing when we look at what the rates were and where the rates are going. Astonishing in a good way of where we're going now. Astonishing right. in a negative way of it took us this long is right. some of my thought. Right. Yeah. Yep. Said. Yeah. How old are your kids? Just for that context. 
I can't believe it as I'm saying it, 24, 22, and 20. Okay. Yeah. And what ages were they ultimately diagnosed? If you don't mind commenting. just Oh, I don't. So the ADHD diagnoses were early. They were in elementary school and they were easy to get and and not a big deal in, in that way. The autism diagnoses came later and came way too late. And after way too many years of people telling me, oh no, they're not autistic. She makes good eye contact. She gets straight A's. She's fashionable. He's so warm and friendly. These are the kinds of things I heard of why they couldn't be autistic. It's absurd when you think about it. When I think about it now, my son was in special education from day one because he wasn't speaking at all by age four. He was flapping straight through high school on a daily basis, even in school. I could go on and on. It seems so obvious, but one clinician after another came up with reasons that they felt my kids weren't autistic. Eventually, they both got diagnosed at eight, each of them at age 17. We had, as a family, realized, okay, that's what this is a few years before that and didn't really care that much. But as they were each transitioning to college, it felt important to make it official. And I took them both to clinicians who were not beholden to me in any way who made their own decisions. And for both of my kids, it was just a relief and incredibly validating to be told, yeah, you know yourself and you're autistic. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as clinicians, we still hear this commentary, or at least I do all the time. I actually had someone actually was on Instagram. It was a an adult looking for a second opinion evaluation because she was told that she couldn't be autistic because she's married. And I was like, someone yeah. actually told you that? I've heard that one. Yeah. Right? I, I've heard that you're because you're married, because you have friends, because you make quote good eye contact. Right. Eye contact. Because yep. you're successful in your career is another big one I've heard. And gosh, none of it's true. It's just ridiculous. These are not reasons to rule out autism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Donna, just for your context, since you shared a little bit about your family, I know we've never talked about this piece. I got into the field. So my brother's 10 years younger than I am. So he's 24 and actually was diagnosed at 23 months of age. So my mom was like, the advocacy queen. She would not stop. And it happened to be right place, right time. Someone actually would listen, but she really advocated and ultimately was able, he participated. And I've talked about this candidly on the podcast as well in intensive ABA. That's all there was at the time. I will say he, he doesn't report it to be the same traumatic experience that many autistic adults that went through ABA do, but that's ultimately how I got into the field is being a sibling. And I was 12 at the time he was diagnosed. I was very acutely aware of what was going on and how we conceptualized autism, how it, to be candid, how it changed the family dynamics. And that's why I do the work I do now. I'm so glad to know that about you. I have to admit, I wondered as we were getting on this morning, I thought, I I don't even know how she got into this and why she's interested in it. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's also one of the contexts of why I pursued 
programs that I could get that specialized autism training. But I was like the lone wolf, like pretty much other than our lab, like no one really knew autism. And it's crazy. I went to grad school 2014 to 2020. So more recently, and you would think that the knowledge really has advanced, but there's also a lot that I'm doing a lot of self-learning now on autism and PDA, for example, is something no one ever mentioned in grad school. So I'd love to, and we talked about this ahead of time, frame this conversation around some of these things that parents of autistic children ultimately might be considering again, so they can go talk to clinicians about it and their team about it. I I did warn you, I have a mini series coming out on PDA. So lots more to come on that, but let's just start there of PDA, how you often describe it. And when you, when I'd be curious of each of these in your journey, when you came across it and was like, okay, I need to keep deep diving into this. And you'll have to control me because any of these topics I could talk about for hours. And (laughs) yeah, when I'm working with parents, I frame this as a vocabulary lesson. Like we're going to just go through all these different words you may not have heard of. But PDA, I probably only became aware of, I want to say maybe six years ago or so. And I don't remember how I became aware of it, but I remember the kid I was working with at the time and he was hitting teachers, wrecking classrooms, jumping out of second story windows. He was just, his behavior was so scary to everyone. And yet he was charming and he could be quite calm and could engage in some interesting conversations. And I don't believe in ODD, oppositional defiant disorder. I just don't believe in it as a diagnosis. It doesn't tell you anything about someone's brain or nervous system. And that's all this kid had been ever diagnosed with. And I was really trying to understand his brain and nervous system. And I was doing research and somehow luckily came across this concept of PDA. And in the end, it fit him absolutely perfectly. And I think it's been life-changing for his family to understand him this way. That PDA stands for pathological demand avoidance, which is a terrible name. Terrible. In part, terrible. Nobody needs the word pathological applied to them. But also it's not really about demand avoidance. It's about a drive for autonomy. And so I use Tomlin Wilding's interpretation, pervasive drive for autonomy. It is a core biological need, the core biological need that overrides all other basic biological needs for these kids to have autonomy. And that does not mean control. They don't necessarily need to control everyone else except in service of their own autonomy to equalize and to regain a sense of autonomy. These kids can have massive behavioral problems because of it. And it is theorized to be a subtype of autism. It is not super duper common, but it's also not super duper rare. And it's well known and accepted in some countries like the UK and Australia, but for some reason has not really been well known in the States until maybe a few years ago. And the best resource here in the States is PDA North America. It's a great group. They have a lot of educational offerings. They have a list of providers by state, and I would recommend them. And the leader of that group, Diane Gould, 
um, has just published a book about PDA and, and North coping with PDA in North America, which I think oh. is going to be a, just a tremendous resource. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I didn't know about the book. I, I go to that website and refer parents to that website all the time. Yeah, we could talk about this the entire episode. But yeah, and I think I would also add that I also see it, in, it, particularly in females, I have a couple on my caseload now that it's also presents as very intense anxiety mm. sometimes. Ha, is that something you've come across? Absolutely. In general, females tend to internalize where males tend to externalize. That doesn't apply to every single human being, but it's a general rule. And yeah, absolutely. There can be this sort of internalized PDA where you don't necessarily have the behavioral problems, but you have the anxiety. You also, a lot of PDAers have this sort of Jekyll and Hyde where they can go to school and many of them can't manage school, but a lot of them go to school and they're just perfect students at school and they go home and completely lose it because it was so stressful for them to get through the day. And then their parents are blamed and shamed. She's good at school. So it must be your parenting kind of thing, but she's an anxious kid at school. Yeah. And then I think sometimes that pattern, sustaining that pattern for prolonged periods then leads to the burnout, which is then where going to school becomes its, its own challenge in itself. And I definitely have some kids on my caseload right now where missing high amounts of schools. And I think it's really interesting. I definitely don't think the educational system has caught up um, trying to talk with teams like IEP teams about how they can accommodate and support this. They just are not understanding it. It's, oh, we'll do a reward system. And I'm like, oh my, that's your (laughs) response. Okay. And that we're also seeing a huge surge of, again, in my world, children ultimately go and be homeschooled at that point or the unschooling movement that's come to help regulate their nervous systems. For sure. Many of them really need to be homeschooled because there aren't a lot of schools in the States that can handle them for sure that can support them. Absolutely. I'm trying to think if there's anything else on PDA. I think one interesting thing too, and granted less relevant for the listeners of this podcast, but I have seen some things and I actually came to you and said, do you ever see PDA outside of the context of autism? So let's talk about that link really quick. Hi, masking autism, all of that and comment on that if you don't mind. So I have asked every PDA expert I've ever interacted with, and they all say that they see PDA as a subtype of autism. I can say that I've worked with many PDAers. I have never had one that does not also meet criteria for autism. So I do, at the very least, think it co-occurs and there's a strong connection there. But the autism can be quite subtle. They can have superficially very good social skills, but the depth it can be really lacking. For instance, they can really struggle to understand or basically understand sort of the reasons for the social hierarchy. Like why kids have to listen to teachers, why kids have to listen to adults. Like that kind of blows their minds. And they are known to say to it, parents or teachers, yeah, I, I don't see why I have to listen to you. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So when you get below the potentially good superficial social skills, that's when you can start to see the differences that can make life so stressful for them. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that also the can complicate the presentation. And a lot of times I'm seeing in my practice that 
previously families were told, no, this isn't autism because they're not understanding all of these nuances with the masking and how it can present in different ways. So that's not uncommon. Absolutely. And I I guess one thing I'll add is when I'm thinking about whether or not somebody is a PDA or I use the um, core features, so they're not diagnostic criteria because it's not a formal diagnosis. It's core features that are put forth by the um, PDA Society in the UK. I find them to be very helpful. So if parents are wanting to um, think more about that, I would encourage them to explore the core features. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't know if I've stumbled across that. So I'm going to have to circle back myself. Will you, because it's not an actual diagnosis, how do you usually handle this in terms of evaluations? Is it written in the report? Are you talking about it? So parents know what is possible and what they should be asking the, the clinicians they're working with as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And remind me, I can send you, I have a one-page cheat sheet on the core features I can send you and you can put it in the show notes. I also have a video online where I review the core features and explain what they look like because it's so much more than demand avoidance. There's more to it than that. I write, first I I diagnose the autism, assuming it's there. And then I write, and this child seems to have a theorized subtype of autism known as PDA. And then I explain what the PDA is. So it's not in the formal diagnostic list, but it's described as their type of autism, or we sometimes say they have a PDA profile. Mm-hmm. And, and then I spend a lot of time in the report explaining what it is and how to support them in school, because it's like you said, it's new. Most teachers, many other clinicians either haven't heard of it at all, or have only vaguely heard of it and think of it just as the child being a stinker, which yep. is not the case, right? Yeah. Oh, and I should also say, if people are interested, if you have educators who are listeners, which I'm sure you do, Laura Kirby in the UK is a wonderful PDA expert, and she has a book out as of last year, The Educator's Guide to PDA, which is fantastic and very easy to read, very straightforward and practical. Thank you, because I'm in the process of writing a report where a kid's at school, and I'm going to put that as a resource in. So thank you. Yeah, Yeah. great book. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. Okay, so just because we could stay here forever... Let's move on. I love framing this as a a vocabulary lesson. What else do you often then dive into? I know we wanted to talk about interception and burnout and RSD, just to name a few. We can jump in anywhere. Yeah, anywhere you want. You want to start with interception? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Yeah, a lot of people haven't heard that word. So when I was uh, raised, I was taught there were, we have five sensory systems and most people still think we have five sensory systems, but actually we have eight and the other three are proprioception, vestibular. Those two have to do with knowing where your body is in space and knowing what your body's doing. And the last one is interoception, which is sensing the signals from inside your body, not from out there in the environment. It is super, super important. This is how we understand our emotions, our affective emotions. Am I jealous? Am I excited? Am I angry? Am I content? How do you know what you're feeling? You know, because your body sends a signal to your brain. It doesn't start in your brain. It starts in your body. So let's say my heart rate escalates and maybe my stomach clenches a little bit. That Those things send signals to my brain, to the insula, 
And then it, they get contextualized because context is important. And so if I'm about to do something really exciting, let's say I'm going to give a talk in front of 500 people, which to me, I'm weird. That's exciting. I interpret those signals as, yeah, I'm so excited. I feel so energized. Let's do this. But if I'm about to have maybe a really hard conversation with somebody, maybe I'm having conflict with a friend, which is really anxiety provoking for me, I would interpret those same exact signals as anxiety. Oof, I'm feeling anxious. So that's how we know our emotions, not just our affective emotions, but our homeostatic emotions. How do you know if you feel hungry or thirsty or tired or sexual urges or pain or heat or cold or have to pee or go poop. It's incredibly important for emotional regulation. And for so many autistic kids who have altered interoception, they may not know what they're feeling. They may not know their affective emotions. They may not know their homeostatic emotions. And so they may be harder to toilet train or they may not know when they're hungry. And these things can be really confusing for people who have intact interoception. And I, the other thing I'll say is, it, it, so it's incredibly important for self-regulation. And we can't try to teach these kids what to do when you're anxious if they don't know that they're anxious. We have to start with teaching them that they're anxious, right? But the other main thing is it's a foundation for empathy. Because if I don't know what frustration feels like for me, how could I possibly imagine how you might be feeling when you're frustrated, right? So it's incredibly important. And the person who's done, I think, the most work and the most practical and useful and accessible work on this is Kelly Mahler, M-A-H-L-E-R. And people can go to her website and she's got tons of um, resources for kids who have um, low interoception or altered interoception. Your interoception can be I call it the volume, like the volume can be too low. I personally think this is more common with autistic kids where they don't necessarily feel their feelings. My, my son has this in a major way and it's incredibly impactful and, or the volume can be too high where that maybe they feel a little twinge in their stomach and it becomes a really big deal to them and they can't contextualize it. So they're convinced they have a stomach ache, but they don't connect it to anxiety. So it's not necessarily one direction or the other. Oh, can I <laughs> see, this is where I just keep going, <laughs> but I, I do want to add one more thing, which yeah. is motivation. Motivation is an emotion, yeah. right? And when we have a kid who has really low motivation, I, you always think of the, the main things, are they really depressed? Are they smoking too much weed? All that kind of stuff that can lower motivation. But if you have really low interoception, you're not going to feel the feeling of motivation. And that's really common with some of these kids too. Yeah, absolutely. I had an occupational therapist on the podcast who specializes in sensory systems. So for those listening, that's episode 18. And we talked about how there's eight senses and all of this. But one of the difficulties we also talked about is there's not a lot of providers who really understand this. Not all OTs are trained in the sensory system, for example, in addition to the website that you recommended, what are you recommending in terms of therapeutic approaches for this, if you could comment on that briefly? 
Yeah, you're exactly right. I just keep a list locally where I am in the Washington, D.C. area of therapists, psychotherapists and occupational therapists who do interoception work. And it can be either. Traditionally, this is the realm of OT for sure, but I think more and more psychotherapists are realizing how crucial it is to their work. Mm-hmm. And so I and I think there you can find people in many areas of the country And I think Kelly Mahler has a Facebook group where people can get on and say, hey, who's good in Wichita or wherever you are? Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons too, is I always find it so fascinating of like, how do we teach kids emotions? I recently got a text. Someone was like, okay, I want to teach kids emotions. What are your favorite resources in terms of like charts and things like that? And I'm like, no, we can't start there of like a happy face and expect it to generalize. And teaching emotion regulation is so much more than just teaching emotions or teaching deep breaths. We see so much resistance to deep breaths. There's many reasons for this, but one of them being the child might, or that again, I say child because largely that's what I specialize in. And I think the large majority of parents here, but really even yourself, it might be not recognizing that you even need that as a strategy. I'm exactly. so important. Yeah. And we're always asking kids how they feel as therapists. We have, how do you feel about this? How are you feeling in general? Parents ask these things. And for these kids who have low interoception, that is like asking them, what color is your breath today? Yeah. They just don't get it. And it's just incredibly frustrating. And then we tend to get frustrated with them when they don't give us some kind of response, right? And send them subtle or overt signals that like, come on, you've got to answer my question. How do you feel? But they don't necessarily know how they feel. Speaking as the mom of somebody who has really low interoception, it's incredibly impactful, incredibly hard. Yeah. Absolutely. And sometimes too, I think, and this goes hand in hand with masking, which I think could bring us more into the burnout realm next. But I also find that sometimes kids can answer that question, but it's not that they're truly paying attention to what their body is feeling. It's they've learned that's the right answer, right? That's gotten reinforced, that's gotten attention. And so then they learn to just say that versus that application isn't there. And I think that's something to be cautious and aware of. No, my kid can understand what their, his or her feelings are or their feelings are, but it's, is that deeper awareness there or is it a rote memorization? I think that's a very different phenomena. I completely agree with you. And, and the ability to use context to know intuitively what your listener is looking for. Like when I walk into work and a colleague says, Hey, how you doing today? I intuitively know the answer is I'm great. How are you? In that they're not looking for, actually, my dog peed in the house as I was leaving for work and I have a terrible headache and blah, 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 blah. Right. But if my husband says, How was your day? That's the moment to say, Let me unload and tell you what happened today. That using context to know what people are looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That makes sense. So let's move into this realm and just keep this going of neuro crash and burnout and helping parents to understand that piece. Cause I think it relates a lot to this emotion and all of it. It's a seamless transition in my mind. Hopefully it feels that way for you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Neuro crash is a term that I believe was coined by Aut- 
autistic advocate, Ron Kaufman. And it's basically a word for when your nervous system gets completely overwhelmed to the point that you just can't function anymore. We, we all can relate to that feeling to some extent, right? But autistic people experience neuro crash probably more frequently and more severely than non-autistic people do. The triggers can be sensory overload. It can be social overload. It can be other people's emotions. It can be unpredictability. All the things that we know can overload an autistic nervous system. So all those triggers, it can be one trigger or it can be cumulative, like over the course of a day. It can result in overt aggressive behaviors that might look like a, a tantrum or a meltdown, or it can just be total shutdown, situational mutism, not moving, not talking, not in interacting at all. It can look like either of those things. Um, it's not a tantrum, even though it can look like a tantrum, but we know that tantrums just end if the person gets what they want in the moment, right? Shut down, even if you give the person what they need in the moment, which is most likely going to be peace and quiet and to be left alone or to be with like one supportive person, there's still going to be recovery time. It's not like they're going to be like, okay, I'm fine now. Once they're in neuro crash, they need recovery time. And so neuro crash is conceptualized as something short term, right? It's the kid falling apart in the moment as opposed to burnout, which is more the longer term result of a nervous system being in overload for a, too long of a period of time. I have heard three months as this general guide for when somebody might be considered to be in autistic burnout. And autistic burnout has three primary characteristics. The first one is chronic exhaustion. And that's the one that sort of coincides with occupational burnout because and anybody autistic or not autistic can experience the feeling of burnout. Right. Right. And that just chronic, I'm just so tired. I'm just so exhausted. I just can't get any enthusiasm or energy up to do anything right now. So it has that in common, but autistic burnout also includes inc increased sensory responsivity. So more sensory hyper-responsivity and less ability to tolerate sensory stuff and a loss of skills. And that's a big difference. Non-autistic people, I've experienced burnout at times in my career. I don't lose my skills. Right. I just lose my oomph, but there is um, definitely a loss of skills. There, there can also be other symptoms, like maybe your memory is not as good. Maybe you're stimming more. Burnout looks like depression and gets mistaken for depression a lot. But it's not depression. Depression has also anhedonia. So a loss of interest in previously pleasurable activities. A lot of times people who are on autistic burnout, if you leave them alone to engage with their special interests, they can be just fine. They don't necessarily lose interest in their special interests. They don't necessarily lose their self-esteem. Now, that's all at the beginning of burnout. But then what happens when somebody goes into burnout is they're very likely to become depressed because they blame themselves for being in burnout, for not going to school or going to work. And everyone around them gets really aggravated with them. You need to go to school. You need to go to work. How come you're not getting out of bed? What's wrong with you? All of that. Mm -hmm. And so they often really co-occur. Okay. So a couple of questions that are popping into my mind as you're explaining all of this. So neuro crash, obviously not a tantrum. Do you think it's synonymous to a meltdown though? 
I asked myself that earlier and I'd have to think about it more right off the top of my head that I feel like they're the same thing. That that's where my gut went to, because right. to me, it's like understanding that full picture with what truly a meltdown is because a meltdown and actually there's an episode on this, a meltdown and a tantrum are not the same thing, but I often think of that over that sensory overwhelm, you know, like with a meltdown happening. And that's why also the strategies for supporting a meltdown are so incredibly different as well, right. but yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I right this minute, I can't think of how they would be different. I guess I like the term neurocrash because it really points to there is something happening in someone's nervous system that is causing this. Yep. Right. And meltdown, I don't overtly dislike the term, but it all, there's something vaguely blamey about it, it to me. Yeah, yeah. That's why I guess I like neurocrash. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I feel that. And I think maybe too, this might be a little bit of a phenomenon of me working with much younger kids, but I I often talk about it is a nervous um, system overwhelm and overload. It's not just, I want what I want um, and how important that is, but I also get what you're saying. I think there's a negative connotation that has come with meltdown. And I think it's not truly sometimes understanding what the true function of the meltdown is, why the meltdown happens and how to support the meltdown, like throwing behavioral strategies at a meltdown is at, at most not helpful. It might even often be harmful as well. So, and I like, I think you just made a really important point too, about the age. It feels more natural for me to to talk about a four-year-old having meltdowns, but when I'm working with say a 45-year-old, that just would feel infantilizing, right? And to teach her to to be able to say to people in her life, I'm having, I'm in neuro crash right now versus I'm melting down, right? Exactly. And then with autistic burnout, question there of how is that usually approached then? What are some of the supports for that? How is it usually approached or how should it be approached, right? Because they're very different, right? It's usually approached by just assuming it's depression or laziness and with lots of blame and shame, I think. But to ideally first name it, first everybody, including the individual, have to understand, whoa, this is autistic burnout because that changes everything. So naming it is the first thing. And then it's a lot of reducing demands, determining, okay, what is like really, truly, absolutely has to happen every day and what is not life or death and can go by the wayside for a while. Reducing sensory input, encouraging special interests and stimming. There's a great blog post, oh, neurodivergentinsights.com. Yeah. Neurodivergentinsights.com, Dr. Megan Ananeff's website. She's done a um, really particularly great series on autistic burnout and how to treat it. And I, I would direct people there for specifics, but so much of it is rest and recovery. I, I remember one summer, I think it was the summer after 10th grade or 11th grade, my daughter basically spent the summer in bed. And it was really hard for me as a mother. I didn't know the term autistic burnout at that time, but I instinctively knew somehow she needs to be in bed this summer, even though it felt really crappy to me as a mother. And I got blame and shame from some other people in my life saying, how can you let her just spend the summer in bed? You need to get her out of bed. But the thing is, 
she was actually really happy to be there. And I'd go in and talk to her. She wasn't miserable or hating herself or suicidal. She was surrounded by piles of books and she was happy. And she has thanked me years later for that summer because she needed it to recover from the school year and to gather her energy to face the next school year. And I do think there are times when, you know, as Catherine May calls it wintering, right? We just need to take a winter to just slow down and um, do less for a little while. Yeah. And I think that goes so hand in hand with something I talk a lot about and feel really passionate of. You're going to hear all these parenting tips. I think especially with the rise of social media of what you should be doing and you have to follow your instinct as a parent and also recognize that a lot of the the tips that we do see on social media or the books we're picking up are for neurotypical individuals. And sometimes, and that's what you did in that moment is you overrode what society was telling you, you should do followed your instinct as a parent and look how impactful it was for her. It's such a good point, Taylor. And as the parent of any child who is not typically developing, you have to constantly ask yourself, what is the cultural norm here? Does that cultural norm work for my family, for my child? And to have the courage and the strength to throw out the cultural norms at times, it's no easy feat. I I can say that it's hard. It absolutely is. So let's move into RSD and how does that come into the picture? Because I do think that can definitely contribute to burnout happening, this autistic burnout happening at a much higher rate. For sure. So RSD stands for rejection sensitive dysphoria. We are all somewhat, to some extent, sensitive to rejection. Nobody likes to feel criticized or rejected. Some people don't mind it that much. Others, other people mind a lot, but RSD is on a whole separate level. It is actually theorized to be a symptom of ADHD, not autism, but so many autistic kids also have ADHD. So it is often relevant to autistic kids in that way. And I personally do think that it's a symptom of ADHD, not autism. So it is a triggered, wordless, emotional pain that comes with real or perceived loss of approval, love, or respect. It is not just being sensitive to rejection. It is a profound physiological reaction to anybody saying, Ooh, your essay is good, but I think you can work on fixing up some of your grammar or maybe add a few sentences there. That kind of feedback could be taken as severe criticism. And it's not just overt feedback like that, that can be taken as severe criticism, but not living up to your own or other people's expectations, not being praised or validated when you expected to be, just generally feeling like you don't measure up or other people don't feel like you're measuring up. It can come on instantly with no warning at all but it can take many hours to subside. I think of it as as two phases. The first phase is this sort of instant, extremely painful physiological response. People talk about feeling like a whooshing sound in their ears or like a sinking in the pit of their stomach or their heart pounding, like they have physiological reactions. But then the second part I think is even harder where 
and it can take hours or sometimes even days to subside where it's extremely difficult for them to communicate what they're experiencing to other people. And it's extremely difficult for other people to get them out of it. It's almost like they're in this glass jar where you can hear and see each other, but you cannot actually connect. They become unreachable and uncommunicative. And it's incredibly frustrating for everyone because they don't want to be like that. And other people are really frustrated with them. And then there are long-term consequences because this can happen over and over again. And then there's chronic invalidation. There's embarrassment. There can be shame and self-blame. And it can lead to social anxiety because they don't know when it's when they're going to be triggered and they feel little control over it. And I have found that some kids with really bad RSD can be mistaken for autistic when they're not autistic, because it can create such social problems and difficulty maintaining relationships. It's a really big deal that I think people don't talk about enough. Yeah. Cause it's like another thing, like how PDA isn't in our diagnostic criteria, RSD isn't part of our diagnostic criteria too. And yeah, it takes someone to go above and beyond to really learn about all these these profiles that can co-occur with neurodivergence. And I think it's important to think through and consider and all of that. And yeah, I'm curious, and I know we have to wrap up here shortly, but how do you just, and I don't know if you can do this in a short way, but usually handle, okay, if autism's at core, when symptoms and other diagnoses are above and beyond autism, So how I explain it to families is I start with the autism because I do think that's the core way somebody's nervous system is different and the way they are having a hard time managing the the culture that we live in that is not very nice to autistic brains and nervous systems. And then I say, now here's, autism doesn't often come by itself. It comes along with a bunch of other things that aren't part of it, but that travel along with it. So here's your your little list of things. And that can include anxiety, depression, certainly ADHD. Sometimes it can include learning differences, medical things, gut issues, for sure. The list of co-occurring challenges is very long and co-occurring strengths too. Let's not forget about those. It can be being brilliant, either with visual spatial stuff or with verbal stuff, having an amazing memory, having perfect pitch, the ability to research the heck out of something on and on. I I want to say my co-author, Sarah Whalen, did phenomenal chapter in our first book on autistic strains. And I just think really, truly just a a love letter to all the autistic people that she's known and worked with her whole life. Just a a great um, reminder to remember autistic strains as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Before we wrap up, any other like really ones you want to make? I know we had more to go, but time has flown that you feel like really important, like just throwing out some vocabulary for parents to be aware of. I'll do a really quick one that nobody's ever heard of. Autigender. Yeah. A-U-T-I as in autism hyphen gender. Some autistic people do not feel like they're cisgender, but also don't necessarily feel like they're transgender. And I find some of them settle on non-binary or just say, I don't know yet, which is fine. Sometimes they just don't know yet. 
But I love this concept of Adi gender as I can't separate my autism from my gender because gender is a social construct. And so my gender is just part of my autism and I don't have a label for it beyond that Adi gender. And when I explain that to some kids, teenagers, adults, they go, oh my God, that's it. Yeah. That's actually not a term that I've heard. So I'm glad you threw that one in at the end because I I think we often talk a lot about gender, especially as kids age, less I'm having these conversations with toddlers and preschoolers in early elementary, but this becomes a really important part um, of the conversation as many autistic, you know, children age and move into adulthood and all of that. So definitely. yeah. 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 Donna, anything else to wrap us up? This has been a wealth of knowledge. Oh, thank you. Just, I know a lot of your listeners are parents and just speaking as a parent, I liken it to running a marathon. And if you're on mile four and you start thinking about mile 22, it's too stressful. When you're on mile four, you just think about mile four and maybe mile five and that's it. And just take it one step at a time there and use the wisdom of all the other autistic um, moms and dads or parents of autistic kids who have walked this path before you and are walking this path with you. You don't have to do it alone. Yeah. What a beautiful analogy. I really like that analogy because it makes so much sense. So Donna, thank you so much for being here today. So where can people continue to learn from you? If they're like, oh my gosh, I got so much out of this episode. What would be some great places? Uh, so my website is just my name with DR in front of it, drdonnahenderson.com. And I keep a list of, of my podcast episodes there. And the book website is isthisautism.com. And my practice is sticksrude.com, S-T-I-X-R-U-D.com. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. I had a good time. Yes. All right, y'all. That is a wrap for today's episode of Evolve with Dr. Tay. I will see you back here next time. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I want to share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here. And I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye y'all.